This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara Ong Whaley. I'm Jacqueline Dobrin, Communications Specialist at JMU Civic. This is Abraham Goldberg, Director of JMU Civic and Faculty Member of Political Science here at James Madison University. And I am Angelina Clapp, the current graduate assistant at JMU Civic. In this episode, we talk about the most important issue that's not getting enough attention, redistricting. And joining us is David Wasserman, the senior editor for the U.S. House of Representatives for the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter, where he is responsible for analyzing U.S. House races and is recognized as one of the nation's top election forecasters. Nate Silver of 538, has written, Wasserman's knowledge of the nooks and crannies of political geography can make him seem like a local. We invite you to join the conversation with us on social media, at JMU Civic on Twitter and Facebook, and at JMU Duke's Vote on Instagram. Enjoy the episode. Dave Wasserman, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. I wonder if you can start by talking about what's at stake in the redistricting process and why redistricting is so important. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. But in an era of high geographic polarization and historically low ticket splitting, meaning that people are pretty sure who they're going to vote for well in advance of the election, redistricting and where and and how the lines are drawn matters a great deal. It's almost existential for election outcomes. And that's why both parties are going to be uh, invested in this effort uh, very, very closely. The fact of the matter is that the amount of attention that changes to voting procedures have received relative to redistricting so far this year is pretty much inverse from their importance to election outcomes. You know, if someone can't pass out bottles of water to people waiting in line to vote, is that really going to change an election outcome in Georgia? It's not. Is how the lines are drawn in Georgia going to be monumentally important for whether Democrats there are able to win four or five, six or seven seats out of the 14 in the state? Absolutely. This is enormous stakes politics uh, over the course of the next year. And there are a couple of reasons why it's fundamentally different from the round of redistricting we saw in 2011 or 2001. And we can get into those reasons. Following the constitutionally mandated census, what's notable about reapportionment of congressional seats and how might the results of redistricting within states affect national politics? Well, look, uh, control of the House is on a knife's edge. Republicans only need to pick up five seats to to regain the majority. They could regain all five of those seats through the redistricting process, although there's a lot of uncertainty, at least initially. Uh, Look, the census counts came out uh, uh, on August 12th. And, well, we knew back on April 26th which states were going to gain and lose seats. There are six states gaining district, uh, Texas is is gaining two. Uh, there are seven states that are losing a seat each. And when you when you compile uh, the reapportionment numbers, compare it to the electoral votes that were allotted in the 2020 election, Joe Biden would have won three fewer electoral votes under the new census counts than he would have under 
than, than he did in 2020. And so right there, there's a small bonus, very small bonus for Republicans. But how the lines are drawn within states is much more important uh, to election outcomes. Republicans' biggest states that they control are Florida, Texas, North Carolina, and Georgia. Democrats control Illinois and New York and might be able to get an additional seat each out of Maryland and, and New Mexico. But Republicans, when you add up all of the states that they control in this process, uh, they get to redraw 187 districts to just 75 for Democrats. That's not as large as the 219 to 44 seat advantage that they had in 2011, but it's still a significant advantage. And part of that is driven by the fact that uh, bluer states have been more amenable to independent redistricting commissions. And one of the, the other big changes from, uh, from decades past is that we have more independent or bipartisan commissions than we've ever had before. And they don't all operate the same way. Uh, California's commission, for example, is very different from the way that New Jersey's or Washington state's operates. Uh, but uh, the new commissions this time around, Colorado, Michigan, Virginia, and parties will be watching those processes very closely uh, because they could determine whether this is a, a positive redistricting outcome for Democrats or Republicans. We, we have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen in the states where the parties control the process. The other big change from, uh, from 10 years ago is now that the Supreme Court has definitively said it is staying out of partisan gerrymandering, that it is not going to put limits on it. And, and now that it's clear that Congress will fail to act to curb gerrymandering in time for this round, that puts the burden um, on state Supreme Courts more than ever before. I think state Supreme Courts are going to understand that they are the only backstop, um, they're, they're the only obstacle in the way of a partisan majority uh, steamrolling the minority in their states and passing a plan that throws the minority's districts to the wolves. And in Virginia, even in a commission state, uh, it's possible that the commission will not meet its deadline to pass a new map and the process will go to the state Supreme Court. In states with split control, where you have a legislature of one party and a governor of the, the other party, such as Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, state Supreme Courts there could end up appointing special masters to draw the lines. That's what happened in Pennsylvania in 2018. It's what's happened in, in, uh, in other states in the past decade as well. So We've got uh, a whole lot of, of litigation ahead of us. We have a very compressed time period to get redistricting done. There's going to be less opportunity for public input than there, uh, there would have been in years past, even though, to be honest, public input has typically not persuaded legislators to take certain approaches. Partisan politics drives this process. Just a quick follow-up to that. Um... Is this not something that both political parties engage in? I know you mentioned that, that you that we find more independent commissions in states that we would call blue states, but do do both parties engage in partisan gerrymandering? Absolutely. And you know, look, anytime that I say both sides do something, uh, you know, it's, it's fashionable for people to to accuse. 
uh, others of both sidesism, right? This is a case where both sides really have been have a deep history of gerrymandering. Uh, in North Carolina and Georgia, the maps that Democrats drew there back in 2001 were some of the ugliest maps that that we've seen in the last 30 years. They were designed to confer partisan advantage to Democrats in those states. 2011, Republicans uh, dominated gerrymandering because they had just had a fantastic year in the 2010 midterms. It, it was not that Republicans had some grand secret strategy uh, that, uh, that allowed them to manipulate boundaries. It was that there was a backlash against the Affordable Care Act, against uh, Obama's first two years that propelled Republicans to large historic uh, legislative gains. And that allowed them to redraw the boundaries in almost five times as many districts as Democrats. And they used that power to lock in the majority that they had won in 2010. Now, it wasn't enough to guarantee that Republicans would hold the majority for the entire decade. In fact, in 2018, a lot of districts that Republicans had drawn to be safe Republican seats in the suburbs, well, they had migrated left in the in the, uh, the past eight years. So it's a lesson for parties that the plans that they make at the outset of a decade don't lock in elections at the end of the decade, that demographic trends can, uh, can, can impact how districts perform. Um, that political trends can can um, unravel the best laid plans of map makers. So we'll be watching that this time as well. So even if even if I disagree, uh, maybe as a partisan with the concept of gerrymandering, am I not at a competitive disadvantage if I'm not trying to gerrymander districts that would favor my specific political party? That's right. So if parties unilaterally disarm, they lose. And that's just the reality of, of modern gerrymandering. Uh, look, uh, Democrats have talked extensively about how Republicans engage in extreme gerrymandering, right? Well, uh, you know, I read a report earlier this month in Mother Jones that said that Republicans could pick up between 11 and 16 seats in the four large states that they control by gerrymandering. And those would be Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, and Texas. Well, first of all, I don't believe that Republicans can pick up that number of seats in those states because uh, to try and press their advantage that much in those states, it would amount to what is, uh, what is often called a dummy mander, where parties try and spread out their voters so thin that a map can end up backfiring in a bad year or even a neutral year. Texas Republicans currently have uh, have 23 of the 36 seats in that state. I think the best they can do in a new map is, is 25 of 38, essentially adding the state's two new seats for themselves, uh, but otherwise uh, not taking away Democratic opportunities. Had Democrats not sued successfully to overturn Republican gerrymanders in Virginia, North Carolina, Florida, and Pennsylvania in the past five years, they probably would not be holding the House majority today. And so, uh, you know, the biggest uh, redistricting weapon for either party this time is probably New York State. Um, this is something that isn't getting a whole lot of attention, but 
Right now, New York has 19 Democrats and eight Republicans. It's very possible by the time redistricting is done in that state that Democrats could hold 23 seats and Republicans just three. And effectively, by redrawing the map in upstate New York, Staten Island, and Long Island, Democrats could purge five of the remaining eight seats in the state. That is That would be the single biggest swing of any state in the country, and it would be a Democratic gerrymander. Can you speak on how redistricting will impact the 2022 elections? Yeah, yeah. look, it's, it basically will determine the state of play for the 2022 elections. There are five factors that I see as, as uh, determining the House outcome in 2022, and those are redistricting, the larger political environment, retirements, recruitment, and turnout dynamics. But of those five, redistricting is the single biggest factor that will determine uh, who controls the speaker's gavel in 2023. So you recently tweeted about three hours ago, if you're a member of Congress in 2023 wondering why you can't find anyone to work with across the aisle, it's probably because your party killed off the other side's most bipartisan members in redistricting. Um, and we've, we're seeing examples of that, especially in states like Illinois. I wonder if you can speak to the consequences of partisan control over drawing district lines. Sure. So that was a bit of hyperbole on my part when I said that. Obviously, there are bigger drivers of polarization and and um, party um, homogeneity than than redistricting. However, uh, there is kind of this common pattern in gerrymandering that you know the the targets that the gerrymanderers go after tend to be the ones that already represent the most vulnerable seats. And those members are the ones with the most incentive to begin with to work across the aisle. So for example, uh, Rodney Davis in Illinois actually represents a very competitive district in downstate Illinois. He's a pretty moderate Republican who is more of a, a um, business-minded Republican than, than someone who has embraced Trumpism. And Yet his district is a prime target for elimination by Democrats because they want to pick up a seat and they can swing his district from one that voted for Trump by three points to one that voted for Joe Biden by 17 points if they want to. Uh, then when you consider uh, Adam Kinzinger, you know, his district in Illinois uh, goes from the Wisconsin to the uh, Indiana border. It is kind of a geographic buffer zone between the Chicago districts that need to expand and the downstate districts that that also need to expand. And so his district is a natural target for elimination, even though uh, he voted for impeachment, has sided with Democrats uh, in creating and serving on uh, a, a January 6th commission. And Kinziger... Uh, Democrats figure he would he would lose a primary to a more pro-Trump Republican anyway. And so they don't see it necessarily as eliminating him so much as eliminating a pro-Trump candidate. State legislators have the power to determine how districts are drawn. This has created some variability across states and the redistricting processes with only a handful of states that have independent commissions or bipartisan commissions. Who should have the power to draw lines and what factors should determine how districts are drawn? So 
you know, I can only speak to what I think has worked well uh, in terms of, of promoting competition and uh, and promoting um, maps that are uh, that are are not you know complete uh, completely destroying the the other party. Uh, you know, if if I could suggest one uh, one change for uh, for Congress to make because Congress can regulate the election of its members, it would be that uh, it should require states to minimize the numbers of counties and municipalities that are split in the in the redistricting process. It wouldn't completely eliminate gerrymandering, but it would it would curb its most extreme excesses. And when Democrats in HR1 essentially swung for the fences by mandating the creation of independent redistricting commissions in every state, uh, it uh, it it really was not feasible, not workable in time for this round of redistricting anyway. And it reinforced HR1 as a piece of legislation that uh, you know, w- was a pipe dream uh, when it came to passage in the Senate. But I do think there would be more support for some basic measures, some basic guardrails on the most extreme uh, examples of gerrymandering that split uh, existing counties and cities and precincts into smithereens. Uh, In Texas, for example, Republicans have split the Austin area six ways to dilute Democratic votes. Uh, And I would expect that Democrats will draw a pretty extreme map in Maryland to try and win all eight of the districts there. So uh, I think commissions work best when uh, they are made up of citizens. California did, I think, a very reasonable job of of drawing maps that promoted competition and turnover in 2012. Uh, the commission there took a lot of flack from people who said that Democrats were able to influence it uh, in surreptitious ways. However, it prohibits uh, the commission members from taking into account incumbency and partisan data when drawing a map. Uh, you know, I think a partisan blind map is the only way to uh, to go about it, considering that in other states with commissions, uh, there are Democrats and Republicans who serve on the commission with marching orders from incumbents to protect certain people. That ends up producing maps that aren't much cleaner uh, or or better for uh, for for voters ability to have a say in who represents them, then a lot of states where partisans get to redraw the map. I wonder if you could tell us what a partisan blind map might look like and how we would get to a process of partisan blind map drawing. First and foremost, uh, I think reform would have to spell out that uh, that citizens uh, would serve on the commission and would be prohibited from taking into account election data and incumbents' residence when drawing maps. That's effectively what California has done. And I think their, their maps have, uh, have created much more competition than the previous map, which, uh, which was designed to protect all 53 uh, of California's incumbents. Now, this time, 
around. You've got commissions in Colorado, in Virginia, uh, with different criteria. In uh, in Colorado, for example, uh, competition is a priority for the commission, and so the state's eighth new district may be a competitive uh, seat drawn somewhere in the Denver suburbs. Uh, that's an approach that actively incorporates partisanship in, uh, into the process as a consideration uh, with the goal of, of creating uh, some meaningful choice for voters. Given that H.R. 1 is unlikely to be passed and that it's swung too far, what prospects do you see for redistricting reform at the national level? I think redistricting reform has been much more successful at the state level than the, than the national level. Um, and in part, that's because states have different cultures and, and tend to know what types of reforms work best in their states. You know, at, at the national level, part of the reason it's been difficult for Democrats to get uh, uh, their, their party completely on board behind H.R. 1 is that there are some uh, members of the Congressional Black Caucus who are skeptical of of uh, the possible results from a commission that would take into account, uh, uh, you know, uh, county and municipal boundaries first at the expense, perhaps, of maximizing the number of majority minority districts. That's the reason, for example, that Congressman Benny Thompson from Mississippi voted against HR one. But uh, you know, I do think that that Congress placing some basic guardrails. Uh, on on gerrymandering, such as if an entire district can fit in uh, into a a certain county, it, sh- it must be drawn. I think that type of nesting or minimum split requirement would go a long way. I'm wondering if you can speak to whether or not, in your view, geographic representation at the national level is still the best way to ensure that our citizens um, are represented in government. And I'm just wondering about the really sort of what would be seen as a radical idea in this country of switching over to a more proportional uh, representation like what you find in several other Western democracies. There's a desire on the part of, of a lot of reformers for states to have more representative delegations. In other words, uh, that there should be more proportionality in districting and that if, if uh, for example, Democrats are winning 45% of the vote in Ohio on a consistent basis, they should maybe have seven of the 16 seats in Ohio rather than four, which is what they have today. The problem you run into is that it's not always possible to guarantee proportional representation through districting. Uh, for example, in Massachusetts, Republicans routinely win about a third of the vote in the state. There are nine districts in Massachusetts, but it's impossible to draw three Republican-leaning districts in Massachusetts. In fact, it's even impossible to draw one Republican-leaning district in Massachusetts. The reason is that uh, there aren't enough Republican-leaning places in the state to form uh, one whole district that's contiguous. So if, if reformers' goal really is for proportional representation, then they probably should start advocating to a switch to that for a switch to that system. I don't think it's going to arrive anytime soon uh, for a variety of reasons. 
not the least of which is that members of Congress who would have some say over the, the passage of, uh, of, a, uh, of a reform instituting that, uh, they tend to like the districts that they were elected from. If, if one goal in a democracy is to encourage as much voter participation as possible, a switch to a proportional representation system might help us to achieve that goal better than having any type of geographically defined districts. I don't disagree. Look, I think what I was going to say was, I do believe that Congress would work better if there were more Democrats from red states and more Republicans from blue states. And one of the most interesting statistics to me is that back in 1993, only 53% of members of the House came from states that that their party's presidential nominee won in the previous election. Uh, There wasn't actually much of a relationship between uh, how your state voted and which party you belong to in Congress. Part of the reason for that was that uh, Democrats at that time still occupied a lot of Southern districts. Republicans still occupied a lot of Northern districts uh, in states that had voted uh, you know, for Bill Clinton. And yet uh, today, uh, 72% of members of Congress come from districts in states that their uh, party's, party's presidential nominee carried. And I think that number could approach 80% after this round of redistricting, because Republicans are pressing their advantage in red states, Democrats are pressing their advantage in blue states. So as we're talking about potential reforms, um, I know that in some states, the outcomes haven't necessarily lived up to the reforms that were intended. How should lawmakers, activists, and the broader public be thinking about reforms, about the process of reform, and what consequences and implications should lawmakers consider when they're designing reforms? So we've seen some states that have been able to uh, pass redistricting reform through ballot initiatives. Uh, And in fact, that's what's happened in most states where we've seen changes to the process, right? Is that in in Michigan and uh, Colorado and Virginia, uh, voters have passed um, wholesale changes to the process. Now, there are some states where voters approved uh, of new commissions but where the legislature still has final say over maps, uh, that is, is kind of a, a fake reform, uh, in my opinion, because in New York, Democrats can pretty much overrule what the commission comes up with. Same thing with Republicans, potential to overrule what the uh, uh, Utah commission comes up with this round. Ohio is kind of an interesting case. Ohio's legislature... Uh, led by Republicans, they approved a a reform to go to the ballot and then voters approved it in 2018. And the reform essentially requires that for a a 10-year map to pass, uh, there has to be strong bipartisan support for it. More than half of each party's legislators in uh, in both houses of the Ohio legislature have to vote to, uh, to, to pass a new map. Of course, that's very difficult to achieve consensus on something that's as existential as as uh, the way the map is is drawn, uh, and so if the parties deadlock, then uh, Republicans can pass along party lines with a simple majority a map that's only valid for four years. 
But if they decide to pursue a really aggressive gerrymander in that state, it runs the risk of being struck down by the state Supreme Court, which is still fairly moderate. So a lot of these states are real choose-your-own-adventure novels. And that's why there's so much uncertainty heading into this process about just what the, the final count will be of party gains and losses attributable to maps alone. You are the co-creator of 538's Atlas of Redistricting. What should districts look like? So uh, I may have touched on this, but we, when we put together the Atlas of Redistricting, we, uh, we drew seven different maps for each state. Uh, we drew a Democratic gerrymander, a Republican gerrymander, uh, a map that maximized competitive seats, a map that maximized uh, the proportionality of districts, a map that uh, maximized majority-minority districts. We also did a map that, uh, that followed county and local boundaries to the extent possible. I do think that gerrymandering is a unique, uniquely democratic screw-up. Um, the fact is, in most first-past-the-post single-member uh, representative democracies around the world, updating district boundaries to reflect changes in the population is a fairly straightforward bureaucratic function. It's not without controversy, uh, but it is not the same um, partisan blood sport that redistricting has become in America. And if, if it were up to career bureaucrats at the Census Bureau or uh, in state capitals to draw new maps, I actually think that would be the fairest approach uh, uh, to get this done, that, that it should be something that's handled by civil servants rather than politicians. The closest system to that is what they have in Iowa. And in Iowa, a team of bureaucrats at the Legislative Services Agency comes up with proposals for, uh, for how, to, uh, to, uh, how district lines should look uh, that are presented to the legislature for an up or down vote. If the legislature doesn't like the first proposal, then the LSA comes back and proposes something else. If the legislature doesn't like that one, it can pass its own plan. But traditionally in Iowa, the, uh, the legislature has eventually approved of, of the maps that, uh, that the bureaucrats propose. And Iowa is one of only two states in the country, West Virginia being the other, that does not split counties at all in redistricting. Now, that's not possible to do everywhere because Iowa has 99 very square, neat counties that, are, that add up to equal populous districts without too much effort. Uh, but uh, I believe that that would be the most sensible approach. David Wasserman, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. We ask this question of all of our guests. What would you do to strengthen democracy? Yeah, honestly, I think the number one urgency in that regard is, is to crack down on misinformation. Uh, the social media giants who control the flow of information and allow Americans to kind of tune into whatever alternative ecosystem uh, they want to live in, they allow problems to fester and misinformation to spread uh, until 
it's typically too late. Uh, and I think in the case of the 2020 election, uh, the falsehoods in the, uh, that were spread on Facebook, on Twitter, and the virality of, of those falsehoods created enormous doubt uh, about the election uh, that fed into January 6th. It could not be uh, be easily reversed. Uh, that, that doubt about how our elections function is uh, it's, it's uh, especially sad because election administrators all, all over the country worked tirelessly to pull off an election in which a record number of Americans successfully cast ballots, almost 160 million, uh, amid unprecedented challenging circumstances. And we owe our election workers a tremendous debt of gratitude. Now many of them are under threat from conspiracy theorists because uh, essentially the the tech giants in this country are our modern day equivalent of, of big tobacco in terms of poisoning the information ecosystem in the country. Uh, we're seeing the same thing happen with regards to COVID-19. So uh, look, we, uh, if, if we want to strengthen democracy, we've got, to, we've got to address disinformation in a more serious way. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu slash civic. Until next time.